Here we are for another War on the Rocks podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about Asian maritime security issues. we got a great group here. Uh, we got Admiral Mike McDevitt here from CNA. we got Scott Cheney-Peters here from Simsec. You all uh, should check out their website and their blog series as well. It's some pretty interesting stuff focused on maritime issues. We have Brian McGrath, uh, one of the heads of the Hudson's Center on uh, Sea Power. And we got Mira Ratpooper here from CSIS, where she runs the Asian Maritime Transparency, Transparency Initiative. See, I almost got that right. And um, we're, we got a great conversation ahead of us tonight. First question I have for the group is, uh, by the way, we're recording this just shortly before the uh, State of the Union, so listeners, you'll, have, you'll know what the president says. But uh, do you guys think, and do you guys think that uh, the president is going to talk about maritime issues in the East and South China Seas tonight? I would, I, I, yeah, no. I, I would say not it's, not, it's not likely. Uh, he's not likely to have too much foreign policy, but if he does, he may talk to China and the economic issues and the sci- cyber issues and what have you. I doubt that he would uh, get delve into things like the South China Sea or East China Sea issues. Yeah, the only thing uh, Asian that he's probably going to talk about is the uh, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, right. requesting a um, trade promotion authority to try to get that moving through, which there's a lot of uh, momentum there and, and hopefully will happen sometime this, this first half of this year. Given that that part of the world is, is one of the world's hot spots, and some people have said that's where the next major war could break out, um, why wouldn't the president talk about that, and what does that say about his administration's approach to the region? Mira? Well, I think uh, the one of the main reasons the president is unlikely to mention these hotspots tonight is that U.S. policy is not, at the moment, changing on these issues. There's not a new policy to unveil or unroll. And U.S. policy is extremely nuanced and complicated and very difficult to explain to a general audience. Um, So when it comes to many of these hotspots, in particular, those in which U.S. allies are involved, so the Senkaku Islands, uh, which involves Japan, a U.S. ally, uh, or the Spratly Islands, which involve the Philippines, a close U.S. ally, the United States has to cleave very closely and carefully to its articulated position, which involves not taking a position on the underlying sovereignty dispute, uh, but in the case of the Senkakus, stating that the security treaty in question applies to the territory in question by virtue of Japanese administration. That's right. Um, But this is a very difficult thing to explain, um, frankly, to a group of experts, um, much less the American people. Uh, So I think that, you know, this is not really ripe for a State of the Union picking. To follow up, just one point on that is it's also important if it, when you think about the overall U.S.-China relationship, that the South China Sea is not the most important aspect of the overall relationship. Certainly, uh, trade and economic issues, cyber issues, uh, dealing with North Korea, dealing with Iran, dealing with the environment, global uh, warming, and what have you, all have pride of place in terms of the overall Sino-U.S. Uh, relationship. So the, the reality is, uh, if he's going to talk about China and foreign policy, in, you know, the South China Sea is, or even the East China Sea is, pretty far down the list of priorities as far as the administration is concerned. Uh, I've, I've uh, used a term saying keep the South China Sea in perspective to try to characterize how the Obama administration thinks about that. I, I come at these things from a little bit more of a naked political angle. Um, I don't think you talk about it because he's not, it's not among his primary interests. Um, I think he has made it very clear that he's a domestic policy president. Um, and you've heard, you know, the don't do stupid stuff kind of rhetoric, and I think that's probably overdone. But it's The real word is shit, I think, not stuff. That's right. <laughs> but this is a family <laughs> podcast, so we can't, we can't say that. Well, we Thank you for making uh, that distinction. Yeah. Uh, and the second one is, is because to the extent that there is that there is policy, and Mira, I think, very appropriately said it's nuanced and difficult to explain, there isn't a whole lot of daylight between the parties on it. And so he right. will use the occasion tonight to um, 
claim successes and to draw distinctions. And neither of those applies very well in this as a political I think I think you touched on a really interesting issue, and, and uh, Bridge Colby, who a lot of us know well, uh, once said at an event I was at, that Asia is sort of one of those interesting foreign policy issues where people on both sides of the aisle generally agree and come together. What, do, do you guys agree, or and if you do or don't, why do you think that is? I think for the most part that's true. I think where you see kind of degrees of difference generally tends to be on how how much people have hope and optimism for China emerging as a full-on partner that is willing to respect its role in an international rules-based uh, norm and whether or not China will engage in some sort of a flare-up or crisis and precipitate one. And so it, it's, it generally comes down to the degree to which people think there's hope in pursuing this as a as a partner or needing to build up those alliances to better forestall what what a lot of people might see as an eventual crisis in the making. By and large, uh, certainly since the end of the Cold War, uh, Asia policy has been uh, almost, uh, with, with very little uh, minor dis uh, disruptions, is solidly bipartisan. Uh, the Republicans are, have been, over time, uh, skeptical, skeptical about multilateral institutions, whereas the Democrats are more likely to embrace multilateralism. Uh, the Republicans in general have favored uh, trade negotiations, where the Democrats have been very concerned about the implication for domestic jobs. Uh, but in terms of the security realm, uh, there is a broad political consensus uh, uh, over the U.S. role in the region the importance of our forward presence, the importance of our alliances, particularly with Japan and South Korea. And so, uh, uh, to the basic point that was, uh, that was made was there is very little uh, political difference, I think, when you look at the broader scope of, uh, of East Asia policy. Here, one of the, in, in terms of all these sort of territorial disputes that we're really getting at here, one of the most interesting are those between China and the Philippines. Um, not least because the Philippines tend to be the most aggressive in reacting to what they view as Chinese um, moves against territory that they claim. Um, there's some interesting things going on in that relationship. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Well, <clears throat> I'm not sure I would necessarily characterize the Philippines as aggressive per se. Um, but I don't I, mean that in a bad <laughs> way, but they react more strongly than a lot of their other other countries in the region. They certainly have been vocal of late, um, and part of the reason for that uh, is that they've sort of been encouraged to carve out a particular path for themselves in trying to resolve their disputes with China in the South China Sea. Um, and we can we can date the current approach at least back to 2012 uh, when the Scarborough Shoals incident took place. This was an approximately 10-week-long standoff in the spring of 2012 between the Philippines and China over Scarborough Reef, uh, in which the Philippines were basically uh, forced to withdraw from the area after the United States helped to broker a negotiated settlement between the two countries, and then China immediately moved in and became the de facto occupier of Scarborough Reef. Um, and the Philippines, after that incident, you know, having seen its ally help to try to broker a peaceful settlement, but ultimately very much not getting its way, uh, decided to pursue the avenue of international legal arbitration uh, to dispute China's so-called nine-dash line claim uh, in the South China Sea, uh, and to advance its own uh, claims over a particular land feature in the South China Sea. So part of the reason why the Philippines has been a particular vocal and notable claimant of late is because this arbitration is ongoing. China has declined to participate in it. Um, the Philippines is pressing ahead nonetheless. Uh, but we've also seen several other actors in the South China Sea sort of entering the fray as the arbitration has gotten off the ground. And what's, what's, the, what's the U.S. position on this arbitration? We're just trying to get China to buy into this rules-based system. Is this just another dimension of that? 
Uh, well, the consistent U.S. position on the South China Sea since uh, 1995, when it first articulated uh, a public position after Mischief Reef, uh, is that it absolutely supports wholly uh, the resort to international legal arbitration as a means for settling territorial and maritime boundary-related disputes. And by international arbitration, we mean arbitration under the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, the United States itself is not a party to UNCLOSE, but it observes UNCLOSE uh, as custom Mary Law. Uh, and has very much encouraged allies, partners to use international arbitration in settling disputes, and, and the Philippines is no exception. Uh, in addition to sort of broadly endorsing the resort to international law, the U.S. Uh, more recently has supported the Philippines by providing uh, legal aid and advice to it uh, over the course of the arbitration, and most recently in December published a major study through its Limits on the Seas uh, State Department series, in which it did a very sort of detailed and careful analysis of of the legal uh, of the China's so-called nine dash line claim, uh, which could be seen as support to the Philippines because this document, no doubt, has ended up in the hands of the arbitral tribunal at the Hague, who has also considered it carefully and and will take its analysis into account as it moves forward. I'm sort of oh sorry, Scott, you have some sure. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, follow up on that. It was another interesting event happened in December as well, related to this case was. Uh, uh, Vietnam surprised many observers by filing um, with the Hague or the arbitral tribunal not to join the case as a party, but basically asking that its position be supported and recognized within the considerations of of the tribunal's finding, which surprised observers because they they thought that Vietnam would not risk upsetting China by seeking recourse with the uh, tribunal. Um, and additionally, something that I thought was uh, interesting that I actually read from Admiral McDevitt here is that uh, others have also asked whether the U.S. could, in addition to analyzing China's claims, also analyze the Philippines and others' claims and also you know, make that public because it's not only China who has potentially dubious claims. Uh, the other claimants, such as Vietnam and the Philippines, they don't necessarily, by virtue of being closer to some of the islands, necessarily have the best claim, so it might be useful for the United States in seeking to not over-embolden its allies and its partners, help to provide them some of that legal counsel. On the issue of uh, the orbital panel, this is, this is really getting inside baseball, but the, uh, right now we don't know for sure whether this orbital panel that was set up at The Hague to to address the request that the government of the Philippines made will decide that they have jurisdiction. In fact, China came out on the 7th of December with, a, with their own statement uh, arguing very, very uh, uh, effectively, I think, that the panel does not have jurisdiction, that the Philippine case is without merit and that the panel should re refuse that it does have jurisdiction and return it to uh, being resolved by the Philippines and and uh, and China, I think that'd be a terrible thing because it's important to have the, the Philippines have their day in court uh, to find out whether all of the issues that they've raised, which are which are, are very important for a resolution of the South China Sea issues, are in fact uh, adjudicated and we have a re response to it. But. We still don't know if the orbital panel is going to happen or not. I'm sort of reminded, sir, just one sec. The uh, I, I was just reading uh, George Kennan's lectures that he gave at Princeton in 1954, and I don't say that to sound pretentious, but I recognize <laughs> it comes across as pretentious. But it's from a dissertation research. And he talks a lot about, in one part of his, one of the lectures, on sort of America's faith in arbitration pre-World War I. And... Um, how is this almost sort of, I'm paraphrasing here, sort of religious faith in the power of arbitration, what it could accomplish on the international stage, uh, and it obviously didn't accomplish much and led to major war. And as I'm listening to the, how much hope we're placing in these sort of legalistic measures, uh, I'm sort of reminded of that. Do you think that's a fair, Mira, I know you had something to jump in on there. No, I, I think that's an absolutely fair criticism and consideration to raise, no question about it. Uh, the, the major reason we would take that into account, Kennan's wisdom, is the fact that even when a decision comes down from the arbitral tribunal, assuming that they decide they do have jurisdiction right. and hear the case, um, they can decide in part, in whole, or not at all, in favor of the Philippines. Right. Um, and depending on what they decide, China 
by no means has to comply. That's right. Um, and frankly, it would be very damaging to UNCLOS and the international legal structure more broadly if uh, the arbitral tribunal came out with a very firm decision in favor of the Philippines indeed, and China just thumbed its nose at it, perhaps even exited UNCLOS. Um, and there was little to be done to enforce that. So decision. why focus at all on arbitration in the first place? Well, because I think uh, there are certainly results short of that that we could see, which would actually be very positive. Um, one such result would, for example, be if the arbitral tribunal ruled that China's nine-line claim was not legal under UNCLOS, which is a, a big part of the Philippines case, and pressured China to clarify its claims uh, under some of the other options that the Limits on the Seas paper recently laid out for us. Uh, but then China actually did have the opportunity to revise uh, its statement of what exactly its claims meant and hopefully brought those closer into line with international law. That would be a significant achievement and gain for many of the parties involved. And China is very sensitive to global public opinion. Uh, it, sometimes we may be skeptical about that, but in fact... It seems uh, sensitive to the point where they condemn it when it disagrees well, with them. Yeah. <laughs> You know, China's view is uh, national interest. We're blocked in China, by the way. War on no, the Rocks no. is blocked China, in China. <laughs> you know, it is that, that uh, uh, national interest trumps international law. I mean, that's kind of their view. Well, we have the same view, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe in, in, a, in a very different way. Brian, what's your take on all this? Yeah, I look at it as a tactical matter. I'm happy to see China tied up in international tribunals. I'm happy to see other nations using their concept of three warfares against them. I'm happy to see that. Can you break down briefly what you mean by three warfares? For I, I don't remember. The, the, there's a law, there's a media, information. Information. and information. And this is a Chinese doctrine. It's a, it's, a, it's a doctrine of, of information, informa informationized warfare. And lawfare, in other words, using, using these three mediums, if you will, to shape the world in ways that will advantage China. And this isn't like this isn't just Annex Hotel India and Juliet of their op order. This is something that is deep into the military planning. Um, that that the, how it's perceived, what kind of advantage they can gain from these sorts of things is it's, it's deeply ingrained. And I think we we are only now I think waking up to the sophistication of the of the approach. And I think perhaps we. What we, what the encouraging the Philippines in the, in the manner that it, it sounded like you suggested might might be that we're getting smart too. <laughs> we need to remember the Philippines had no other option. They're 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 essentially defenseless for, for goodness' sake. Uh, they had no other options if they wanted to try to make a case against China. Going going the arbitration route was li really the last option they had. The, the, just just to tack on to this sort of broader statement about how national interest plays into these calculations, as we've already discussed, this all sort of came to being after the Scarborough Shoals standoff, in which the Philippines expressly sought from the United States, and the United States declined to give a promise that the Mutual Defense Treaty had some application to the Philippines' territorial claims in the South China Sea. As we did with Japan. As we have done uh, in a, a very specific, carefully worded way with Japan. Uh, but the United States did not give that promise. It reaffirmed the fact that the Mutual Defense Treaty applies to the Philippines, um, but it has not made a more forward-reaching statement of the way that its security umbrella applies in the South China Sea. So having a fairly paltry naval and Coast Guard capability of its own, the Philippines really did not have uh, much else that it could do besides resort to arbitration and hope that it would see the international community supported in that endeavor. Listening to all this, I'm sort of reminded how complex diplomatic history is because if you know, you're someone 50, 60 years, 100 years from now looking back on this and how we carefully worded the statement with Japan to apply it, it to Senkakus, but we didn't extend the same to the Philippines. It's just very complicated and looking back on other periods as I am now. said it was, our policies were nuanced. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of 70 years. Well, yeah, that's a good transition. That was better than what I intended. Uh, well, I, I, the next part of the podcast, we're just going to talk about what's happening in three other countries. We're going to talk about Taiwan, we're going to talk about Japan, and we're going to talk about... Uh, what was the other one? Indonesia. Indonesia. And uh, let's talk about, we're coming up on the 70th, 70th anniversary of the end of World War II. There's obviously a lot of his sensitive uh, historical issues between August Japan. August 15th, and, right? Between Japan and uh, its its neighbors, and especially China in some ways. 
what are the uh, what are the implications? Well, what is, what is the impact? I mean, this was 70 years ago, right? So some people might be wondering what possible impact could that have on what's happening in 2015. Uh, but so answer that question. Well, in, in many ways, relations really are kind of stuck still in this immediate post World War II uh, mindset, and you know you have some of these countries who still have not yet signed a, a an end to the hostilities between the two of them. Um, you know, speaking of Russia and Japan, but you know with the 70th anniversary, Russia likes to reserve its options as well. <laughs> yes, recently reminded of. Uh, but so the the whole region is going to be kind of under a microscope. Japan, in particular, is you know seen as sort of the aggressor who has not yet apologized enough in the eyes of China and in uh, South Korea, in particular. Uh, yeah, especially not under the uh, the current uh, uh, LP uh, LPD party in, in Japan, and you have Abe's government, who comprises some rather right wing uh, parliamentarians in his in his uh, uh, government, uh, who don't want to apologize, who for don't a want lot to apologize, things and, that happened, during and World who War II. would like to see more visits to the uh, Yasukuni Shrine, who would like to see. Um, more revisionist history, and of course, um, something that we at the U.S. would like to see, but also kind of um, inconveniently aligns with those sort of interests of the uh, uh, revision to Japan's constitution to make them have a few more military options. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of uh, sort of walking on geopolitical eggshells in the region to see whether or not Japan does something that. Uh, is, is just going to, frankly, piss off its neighbors and whether what that sort of reaction will be, whether Japan's attempt at sort of having a thaw with uh, Xi and uh, China is going to pay out any further, um, whether there's going to be any further movements between uh, Japan and South Korea, where you saw in December, uh, finally, the very first step of an agreement for sharing uh, intelligence via the United States uh, North Korea's nuclear program, a very limited step, but still a step in the you know, a positive direction. Um, whether there will be any building upon this or something that will just throw a wrench in the whole works and you know, bring things back to, to square one. Mike, you just wrote a, a I just want to commend your paper um, that you recently wrote with, with the Center for Naval Analyses, which touches on some of these issues. Um, before, and it will be linked to on the page, so you should read that, but Mike, I'll let you address this. Um, well, the, the basic problem right now in Japan is uh, Prime Minister Abe, uh, based upon uh, many things that I've read, people I've talked to, has a personal, a personal view that uh, many of the things that most people around the world believe that Japan did uh, in terms of the Nanjing Massacre, uh, the horrible treatment of POWs, uh, the Bataan Death March, you know, the beat goes on. Uh, he, he believes that, uh, and many of the people who, on the right who support him, that that is overblown. In fact, they've gone to the point of being, being deniers, that it didn't happen that way. It, this is all this is all victor's justice. The Tokyo war crimes were all based upon because the West, the United States and its allies won the war, they imposed and none of this really happened. It's a total rejection to essentially what is commonly accepted and well-documented history. And so, uh, and the reason Mr. Abe has such a, uh, a personal uh, visceral feeling for this is his grandfather uh, 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 Prime Minister, subsequently Prime Minister Kishi, during World War II, was involved in uh, uh, using POW laborers and what have you. And his grandfather was almost indicted as a war criminal. wasn't, but almost was. Subsequently, of course, he became Prime Minister of Japan in the 50s. But uh, so he sees it as a, almost as a personal thing that you know, I know my granddad, and he he wasn't a bad guy. He was a good guy. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just want to put on record the fact that although a lot of this uh, narrative certainly does have to do uh, with Japan's wartime past, it is worth noting that Japan has 
issued official apologies. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, j- just for our uh, listeners who may not be aware, uh, for its wartime behavior. Right. Uh, but there are these sort of deep, persistent regional wounds, um, particularly between Japan and China, um, with respect to things like the Nanjing Massacre, and between Japan and South Korea, with respect to things like the comfort women issue, um, and, and uh, hi- history in textbooks. Uh, is something that's been very significant in that relationship. Uh, so part of what many analysts are sort of calling for, hoping for, is that Abe will issue some kind of stronger statement than past administrations have. Uh, it, it sounds like from analysis, at least that I've read, that if he does issue a statement, it will in part uh, deal with World War II, but in part be looking towards the future and Japan's constructive role in the region. And part of the reason that that is so relevant is exactly as Scott mentioned, we're really at a watershed in Japan's security policy. Um, With the last uh, elections that just took place in Japan in December, Abe now has a clear majority for the next couple of years and is going to, in all likelihood, be able to push through his reinterpretation of Japan's constitution's Article 9, uh, which has has historically been interpreted, uh, the, the interpretation, not the revision of the article itself, uh, which has been historically interpreted as preventing collective self-defense, uh, that is uh, engaging in defense activities on behalf of an ally or another partner. Um, so it's, it's uh, very much important to Japan that the region is not hostile to it, that it understands that this is a different Japan uh, than you know was active and responsible for wrongdoings in the 1940s. The, bo- the bottom line is it's our, our number one ally in Asia and what has happened is its relationships with South Korea and, and China are as bad today as they've ever been, uh, at least in the last 35 years after normalization, uh, be- be- the peace treaties between Japan and China and Japan and Korea. Uh, and it, 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 makes, it makes our desire for increased stability in the region more difficult. Uh, and so we would like very much to talk about the future, not about the past. And unfortunately, a lot of people in, uh, who in the LDP continue to bring bring the discussion back to well, the past as opposed to focusing and, on future and what Japan has done since 1945. And I know our State Department is very focused and frustrated by the sort of South Korean-Japanese relationship. And, and I've, I've heard some people there take the attitude of, you guys just need to get over it. Yeah. Um, but the fact remains is that more That's South... Wait, wait, I'm, not, I'm just reporting what I've yeah. heard. More South Koreans view Japan as a threat than view China as a threat. Uh, and considering these are our two closest treaty allies in the region, um, that's a problem in terms of the U- a U.S. security architecture perspective. So what can the U.S. reasonably do about this, and and is the Obama administration doing it? If there is something that we actually can do, I mean, just I think just trying to make more small steps. You know, like like we saw this thing in December. You know, you know, don't set the bar so high that you're setting yourself up for for failure. Um, you know, it's it's going to take you know the term confidence building measures and trust building measures, and trying to keep any of the fanatics on either, either side from Again, you know, doing something, running their mouths to, you know, really throw a wrench in it. But you know, it's well. You, you know, you can also look at maybe quadrilateral type of relations. You know, like we've got recently this uh, trilateral uh, building upon alliance between Japan, the United States, and India. You know, there's an opportunity to expand that to include South Korea. There's others with you know South Korea. Australia, Japan, the United States, there's a different couple different ways you can do it where it's not directly bilateral between Japan and South Korea that you can start again trying to build up some of that, that confidence and trust. We've, but we've made a step forward with South Korea that finally Japan and South Korea agreed on an information sharing, intelligence sharing. Well, it's limited strictly to North Korea, but this was an agreement that was about ready to be signed two years ago and all of a sudden the South Korean press got wind of it, uh, and uh, a very energetic press in Seoul, and yeah. uh, and it, it managed to, to uh, derail it for the past two years. And if you're looking for trilateral cooperation on ballistic missile defense, for example, Japan and South Korea have to be able to share information. The U.S. can share information with each one of them, 
But if they can't share information with one another, you can't have a coherent ballistic missile defense against the North Koreans. So this is this is really very important to us that they were able to get beyond that. That just to follow on to that, this is this information sharing um, in ballistic missile defense. However, is something that for a time had been prohibited by the Japanese interpretation of collective self-defense. So, because Japan did not see itself as able to share information to aid another country's defense, it would not necessarily have been able to transfer information uh, from its radars to South Korea. Um, for the purposes of dealing with a potential North Korean nuclear threat. Um, so that also was a significant uh, impediment to uh, information sharing. Uh, but I would also just add that as Japan moves forward with its reinterpretation of collective self-defense, treating South Korea as kind of more of an insider, more of a partner uh, in that endeavor, I think would behoove certainly the United States and Japan as well, as the U.S. and Japan have recently started to revise their bilateral defense guidelines, and that's a process that's still ongoing. They've pre-briefed the ROK to let them know what kind of progress they're making, what they can expect, um, and that just sort of helps to ensure that there are fewer surprises, uh, ideally no surprises, because the South Koreans remain wary of the idea that Japan could be rearming, uh, reasserting itself in a way that could be really negative for the region. So just keeping them kind of inside the fold is... Yeah, well, I, I got to jump in there because we got to stay a little, stay on schedule. I want to jump over to what's happening in Taiwan. Um, we had a big election there, and then they were just local elections, but you know, they were sort of a sign of things to come, uh, where the DPP um, won big, and the KMT, which holds the uh, the presidency currently, uh, you know, really only has two years left, probably. Uh, KMT has done a lot to warm ties, you know, with the mainland. Uh, Mir and I actually were just recently we're, we're members of the CNS. Next Generation National Security Leaders Program. You should all be really terrified that someone thinks I'm a leader of anything, especially our national security. Um, I can barely run a website. And, um, but, you know, one of the things that we, we saw and learned, and Mir already knew a lot of this, but it was new to me, is the extent to which, uh, you know, President Ma's opened up, opened up Taiwan to tourism, to Chinese students, to a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of important relations across uh, across and with the mainland. Um, and a lot of that could be reversed if, when, once the DPP takes power on the national level. What's what's going on there? How, what does this mean for the region? What does this mean for Taiwan mainland ties? Well, what it means for the United States is we've had a, a marvelous period of the last six years of the, where as cross-strait relations between China and Taiwan have been as good as they have ever been historically. And as a result, the prospect of a conflict across the Straits has been lower than it has ever been before. And as a result, the idea that the U.S. might become directly involved in a conflict with China over Taiwan has greatly diminished. So this has been sort of a, of a, of a the golden era, if you will, of cross-strait relations. And there's a possibility that it could slip back to where, to where it was during Chen Shui-bian and George W. Bush's administration when we were constantly on edge that Chen Shui-bian was going to do something it was going to precipitate a very dramatic mainland response and we would then be, because of the Taiwan Relations Act, potentially involved in a conflict with China. So while it's good right now, the anxiety is if the DPP wins the election in 2016, will we be returning to where we were in 2001 and with a very fraught cross-strait relations, which in turn induces tension in the military relationship between China and the United States because both sides are planning with the assumption that if China attacks Taiwan that the U.S. will come to the rescue and U.S. assuming that we would have to come to the rescue, so both militaries are busily uh, improving their war plans to de defeat one another. So this is a serious U.S. issue. So I, I wrote a paper a couple of months ago kind of analyzing, assessing the risk in the Taiwan Strait, and it, it talked a lot to the same points that the Admiral just mentioned about how we've been in kind of this golden age of stability and um, you know, de-escalation of conflict in the uh, Taiwan Strait, but 
you know, looked at, you know, several years out, you know, the next decade and says, as the decade wears on, you know, we start to see that risk increase. And it was interesting, as I wrote this paper before the Hong Kong uh, umbrella revolution right, happened, and, and that, I think, just as much as the, the DPP winning these state and local, or these county and local elections, um, is really kind of putting a, a damper on the, the long-range optimism for cross-strait relations, because... You know, at the same time that uh, President uh, Xi was, you know, touting, you know, one party, two systems for Taiwan, you know, the people in Taiwan were looking at what that meant in, in Hong Kong and saying this is not something that we're really comfortable with or really like what it, it portends for us. And you saw that that also had an effect on the elections in addition to Taiwan's own sunflower revolution earlier in the year where a lot of the blame for the economic downturn in Taiwan right now is is being cast upon this opening up economically with China, um, whether rightly or wrongly, they're kind of acting as the uh, scapegoat in this case. But um, as you said, it, it's likely to mean uh, in the 2016 election that DPP will come back in power um, unless something you know dramatic changes and come back into the presidency. And so there's a lot of um, apprehension that this will mean a souring of this building of these, the three linkages, all of these um, ties that have been built up between, yes, I know. In Asia, it's, it's all about numbered things, the three warfares, the three linkages, yeah, you've got all these great things. Um, but there, there's a, a sense that there might be a, also on the Taiwanese side, um, a closing window of opportunity if the DPP comes back into power for them, if they do want to at some point declare independence, whether rationally or not, that this would be the time to do so before the capabilities swing so much to the side that China would have the ability to execute what is still a very, very incredibly difficult cross-strait invasion to take over and actually hold on to Taiwan. Okay. The, it's important for our listeners to understand why the mainland is so anxious about the DPP, because their party platform, in fact, I think it's their party constitution, calls for an independent Taiwan. And China has made it clear that's one of the red lines and they would use force if China declares independence. That's why the mainland cares so much about which political party wins. But but just Taiwan. to add, add another interesting layer on that. When we were when Mir and I were there, we got a lot of government literature that says the Republic of China, which is what Taiwan calls itself, mm -hmm. is an independent country. Um, yeah, that is its name. But that's you know, it says it says on their you know in plain English actually, ROC is an independent country. But for Taiwan to say Taiwan is an independent country, my understanding is that's a whole different situation in terms of how China views this views it because their government literature always already says ROC is an independent country, and that's because, stuff we well, got from they consider the mainland right because they consider the mainland part of the they ROC. Whereas if Taiwan said they were independent, it would just mean. They're de facto independent. They, they're de jure, not independent. And that's right. the big issue. That when we in the rest of the world de-recognize them, threw them out of the UN, recognize China as a legitimate government, the People's Republic of China as a legitimate government of China. Taiwan occupies kind of a no man's land in the in the in the world of sovereign states. I should jump in, though, that it, and add the fact that even though they operate operate in this sort of bizarre no-man's land of ambiguity, they actually hold some very interesting cards where maritime security and maritime claims are concerned. Um, and the reason for that is that the People's Republic of China's maritime claims are entirely derivative of Taiwan's. Um, and so I just want to say, Mira pressed some very senior government officials in Taiwan on this very Read issue. the president. Um, Hopefully the president. <laughs> including the president. The president. That's where he got his PhD. In yeah, he did, yeah. And he had some brilliant, if brilliantly evasive responses to my question. <laughs> He's good. He's good. He's very good. Um, so, so just for our listeners who may not be aware, uh, the People's, or excuse me, the Republic of China, Taiwan, uh, published in 1947 its 11-line map, which was subsequently republished and revised by the People's Republic of China as its 9-line map. Two dashes were dropped from the original map to facilitate a compromise with Vietnam. Um, but as a result, every claim that the People's Republic of China advances in the South China 
China Sea and the East China Sea is also claimed by Taiwan. Um, there, there is no difference between them. And while President Ma uh, has had this broader agenda of promoting positive cross-strait relations, he also has not done much to shake up anything um, when it comes to Taiwan's maritime claims. He could, for example, uh, take it upon himself, or Taiwan could take it upon itself, to clarify Taiwan's uh, claims within the 11-dash line in a way that may not be commensurate with the way that Beijing thinks about those maritime claims. Who would listen? Oh, everybody would think that would be very important. That would be well, very important in an international court of law. Except that they're not a recognized country, they don't have representation. But they're the ones who originated the line. They're the ones who originated the line, and China, before any sort of international body, is representing its claims as the legal successor so state the, so as the Republic of China. So if the Republic of China, you know, repudiated any of its claims or revised them even slightly, that would have major standing in front of an international court. The reason why I bring all of this up uh, is because the KMT has towed this very careful line, hasn't put much daylight uh, between itself and Beijing on these matters, right. despite non-trivial U.S. pressure to come out and start revising uh, or explaining its claims better. However, just in the last several months and since the DPP routed the KMT in these local elections, DPP officials have suggested that if they return to power, they could have maritime policies that are quite different than the KMT's. Um, one major proposal that we've seen trotted out is the idea that Itu Aba, uh, which is the largest land feature in the Spratlys and is known as Taiping Island in Taiwan, could be turned into a humanitarian disaster relief outpost. Uh, so rather than being a base, it could just purely be turned into a humanitarian, uh, humanitarian and hospital island. Um, and this would be, you know, a significant strategic change as far as other uh, countries who also have claims in the Spratleys are concerned, and certainly would not uh, be something that China would necessarily welcome. So amongst the things we might look for uh, if the DPP comes back into power, one thing would be some kind of revision to Taiwan's claims in the South China Sea. Which would be one more reason why Beijing would be irritated with yeah. Uh, before we turn to the next issue, I just want Mir to talk a bit about this project that she's spearheading at CSIS. So it's actually pretty cool, um, and it's called the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. So why don't you tell us a bit about it? Sure. Um, well, uh, we at CSIS have recently rolled out a new interactive website called the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. We hope you will visit it at amti.csis.org. Uh, we'll AMTI link to on the page. Link on the page. Uh, AMTI basically is aiming to confront head-on the fact that we've seen maritime tensions increasingly rising in East Asia and provide users a way to uh, know what to look for by way of the best information, news updates, analysis, as well as provide them with important historical sources like a library of primary source documents and an interactive historical timeline. So every two weeks, AMTI uh, comes out with a new set of interactive maps that review the latest uh, maritime developments in East Asia and allow users to navigate those developments using interactive maps. And we also feature uh, analysis from leading maritime security experts around the globe. Uh, Admiral McDevitt has been one of those experts, and Brian McGrath will hopefully be joining our ranks soon, as will Scott. Um, and this is a great way to bring together voices not only from the United States, but from China, Japan, Australia, Korea, uh, Taiwan, the Vietnam, the Philippines, and other claimant states um, to uh, you know make and advance arguments about what exactly is at stake in the region, debate with uh, each other, and start to push forward some concrete policy proposals about how we might make some progress on these seemingly intractable issues. Yeah. Mira is very persuasive in getting you to write content <laughs> for her website, yeah. too. Well, you, as a, someone that... Uh, also runs a website. You have to be. I mean, you have to. Uh, you have to sometimes coerce people into Very doing it. So. But uh, the uh, yeah, Scott, you know um, the. Uh, but I do encourage you to look at the site. They do some really cool stuff, particularly with maps. And I know they have some even more interesting stuff with maps planned. Uh, before we jump to the next issue, this is War on the Rocks, so we have to talk about what we're drinking, as we do with every podcast. But you know, before we do that, I just want to thank uh, again the Jefferson Hotel's Cool Bar. They're the best hosts uh, in their cabinet rooms. For, uh, you know, I'm biased, but I'd say the classiest podcast series in town. No offense to Scott. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, I, I would agree. Yeah, well, delightful. Yeah, that's um, pretty so, impressive. Yeah. Uh, Mike, what do you what do you got there? I've got some Stellar Artois. All right. Are you enjoying it? I'm enjoying it. All right. Mir? I am drinking a delightful 2012 Burgundy. Good? Wonderful. All right. <laughs> I'm having Jameson, which I always enjoy, although I'm out. Um, yep. Wait, Brian and Scott aren't drinking currently. 
Well, I'm uh, overcoming a, a stomach bug, so I'm drinking a Fever Tree Dem- or Premium Ginger Ale. It's yeah, actually really good stuff. It's, it's, it's a very tasty. tasty. Ginger Let's give ale. Scott a round of applause for coming with the stomach yeah. bug. Brave 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 um, so, but so last oh, but, and one more booze-related issue. It's important. We, uh, Mir and I, were in uh, Kinman, which is a little island. Oh, formerly known as Kamoi. Formerly yeah. known as Kamoi. That's right, right by so close to China, you can actually see a city in China when you're standing on the beach. Yeah. Uh, best part about yeah. Kinmen uh, was the uh, the sorghum liquor that they produced. That was the worst part. Their biggest. Mir <laughs> didn't like it as much as I did. We were actually sitting next to each other during the tasting. I remember doing the little uh, documentary, and, and uh, we had different expressions on our face. But uh, I brought some home, and it's actually kind of puts a little. Punch in your. If you step. like drinking kerosene, it's definitely strong. Strong. Just, what does it taste like? Does it taste kerosene. like anything else? It's like a mix. Kerosene. It's like a mix between vodka and sake. I'd say. I know. Oh. Like, but no. like, if you mix the two together, oh, I think it would no. taste. We, we, you actually said the same thing when we tried it. You were, you were probably too drunk to remember. I <laughs> was. Hard, I barely drank any of it. It was. Um, <laughs> it, it was more like a soju. Yeah. Okay. It, Right, the 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 it, Korean alcohol. Yeah. Very raw. It has a very raw. raw. I loved it. Very raw. Many people liked it, however. Well, so now I, I want to go to Brian. I want to talk about military balance and hard and hard power. Uh, we've been talking about the South and East China Seas. We were just talking about Taiwan. You were just in Taiwan pretty recently as well, actually. And uh, you know, as a Navy guy, you had a lot of pointed questions. I know about there capabilities and what they what they want, and uh, some opinions on what we want them to have, but not just. Not just as far as Taiwan's concerned, but broader military capabilities and the rise of China's military power. How are we positioned, and what what what's the trajectory that we're looking at? I think the trajectory is somewhat unfavorable to our interests. The trajectory. Um, I believe our our navy is going to get smaller, contrary to what the secretary of the navy says. And the 30-year shipbuilding plan, um, we cannot possibly build up to 308 or 306 ships, um, given historic levels of investment and given the plan, given the plan that they have, and that, that's in the best of situations. With um, sequestration of the Budget Control Act 2011, um, we're not even we're not even close to the the best of situation. So I, I see a fleet that's going to get smaller. Now we're going to devote more of it, we're going to just devote more of a smaller fleet to Asia. I think some, some will probably have a, a, a little bit more power there. Um, but China is modernizing. China is building um, um, I thought I saw something like there are 40 ships mm-hmm. in various states of construction mm-hmm. right now. Um, 40. That's mind-blocking. And by way of comparison, how many do we have? In, in, in various states, states of construction, construction right now? Eight, maybe? Oh, no, 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 no. We have a lot more. Do we? Yeah. Under contract. Oh, no, no, no. You're saying under contract. Under I'm contract. Under, oh, yeah. uh, with China, I'm saying it's under construction. I'm saying under... And that was just a 2014. Number, yeah, right? I'm not, yeah, I don't. I don't know how many we have under construction. Right. Let's say maybe there's an average of 80 a year are authorized. Say maybe there's th- three years worth or two and a half to three years worth. So maybe across the country there are 20 naval vessels under construction. I, I don't even know how many are under construction right now. Well, and then China's all China's fleet just has to be stronger than us in Asia, whereas it, ours. They never, ha- they don't have. This, a lot of people think that. And first of all, Ch- I don't think China has any pretension to do the kind of things we do around the world with our navy. I don't think that's their bag. I think they would like to have a, a navy that's big and strong enough to dominate Asia and slowly kick us out. I think that's the trajectory, and I don't think we are. Doing enough right now to reverse that trajectory or to challenge. What would you be doing differently? Spending a hell of a lot more money on the navy. In terms of shipbuilding, shipbuilding, fleet size. airplanes, um, uh, unmanned aviation, the P eight, the P, uh, the, M, the, the uh, BAMs. I mean, there's. I would be building the portfolio. I would be investing in in a sort of in a naval portfolio um, designed. 
to show that we're not we're not backing away. Scott? Yeah, no, I, I mostly agree with Brian. The only the only thing that I would slightly disagree with is I do think that China, as it becomes more globally vested in a lot of issues, out of its own self-interest is going to start looking at expanded naval capacity. You've seen the summon you know, needing to protect its workers and its uh, you know, economic interests in Africa, um, both uh, in the interior of the country and looking at you know, evacuation-type operations as well as counter-piracy operations. But the flip side of that is that they then gain that operational experience that they can bring back to the waters off its coast in its own region. So they will, I think, you know, expand some, some of its you know, blue-water capabilities, but those will then... Bring them a, a return on investment in, in that sense. Yeah, I, it's funny. I've been working on a project called China as a Maritime Power, which is an avowed uh, objective of uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping and, and the Chinese uh, government. And the reality is, by 2020, China will have the second most powerful navy in the world. Full stop. Period. No questions asked. It will have. More SSNs are the same amount as the as Great Britain or France. It will have the same number of SSBNs as a minimum as those two countries. It will have at least two aircraft carriers, which will match it with India. So they're not going to have the same kind of Navy U.S. has, but they will have the second most capable Navy in the world, including Japan. Uh, by 2020, they'll have at least eight, uh, 20 Aegis-class destroyers. Japan will have six or eight. Korea may have three or five or seven. Uh, Forty modern uh, conventional submarines. Everything I'm talking about has been commissioned and built since the turn of the 21st century. And so this is going to be a modern, uh, uh, ocean-going navy that will look like a mini-me of the U.S. Navy. It's going to be balanced across the whole range of capabilities. Uh, and what have you. Not now, nearly as cute, though. Pardon me? So not nearly as cute, though. Not, well, no, actually, their ships are better looking than ours, <laughs> quite frankly. I'm ashamed to say. Um, we don't know how well they're going to work. We don't know how well their crews are going to work. We don't know if their combat systems are going to work. But we do know that they spent the last six years on counter-piracy patrols out halfway around the world from China, uh, learning, operating with the world's best navies, uh, learning how to sustain, sustain warships, as I say, thousands of miles away from home. And so uh, this is a very smart learning organization, and they're deliberately doing this, but they've hit upon some models and, and designs now. After going through a build a little, test a little, build a little, test a little, now they're mass-producing things that they like uh, that will work. And so we need to realize that there's gonna, they're going to be out and about they're going to be doing just what Scott said, looking after the global interests that their global economic interests have created. Now they have global political interests, so they're going to be in the Indi along the Indian Ocean. They talk about uh, being in the Atlantic. I think they're talking about the Gulf of Guinea, where they have uh, uh, economic oil interests from there and whatever. So be, be prepared. It's only five years away. Mira, do you want to have the last word? Well, I would just tack on to this great conversation and remind our listeners that although we started out by talking about territorial conflicts in the East and South China Sea, fundamentally the reasons that these have become such hot issues in the last few years is because of the strategic trends that we just reviewed um, in terms of China's capabilities. This is sort of a tale as old as time that uh, with a rising power comes increased, substantially increased military capabilities and the ability to assert one's interests. And although many of these territorial disputes have actually been outstanding for decades, they're really becoming hot spots now because of those strategic shifts. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this latest in the War on the Rocks podcast series. It was a really interesting conversation, and I uh, hope you enjoyed listening. Bye.